right. So, good evening and welcome to this Retina UK information evening for Wales. Uh, Retina UK are hosting a series of webinars on different topics and geographical locations, uh, and we'll be delivering at least one of these every month. We are really pleased to have a number of eminent speakers join us this evening. Uh, we welcome Professor Marcella Vortuba, uh, Dr. Nicola Tavener, Dr. Paul Corns, and Mr. Glenn Tukey. Uh, this amazing group will be talking through various subjects over the next couple of hours, um, with subjects including um, patterns of inheritance and genetic counselling, especially relevant to uh, inherited retinal dystrophies. Uh, a summary of IRD research, um, an overview of current IRD gene therapy and treatment trials, uh, how we're going to find new treatments for rare diseases such as IRDs, and we'll have an overview of technology solutions available for people with uh, sight loss. There will be plenty of opportunities for you to ask questions throughout the evening, uh, and there are a couple of ways that you can do this. You can either type your question into the Q&A section, which is at the bottom of your screens, these questions will be asked by the team on your behalf. Uh, alternatively, you can raise your hand by pressing the Alt and Y key if you're using a Windows computer or Option and Y if you're using a Mac. Uh, if you're on a uh, tablet device, if you just press the uh, Reactions button, you can then raise your hand from there. Uh, what we'll then do is ask you to um, unmute your microphone and allow you to ask the question uh, directly yourself. So please leave, leave your questions in the Q&A section throughout the presentation and we will have them answered um, at the end of each session. We will endeavor to answer as many questions as we can. Uh, however, any questions that we're not able to get to will be followed up over the next couple of weeks. So thank you again for joining us. And without further ado, I'm delighted to introduce our first speaker, Dr. Nicola Tavener. Good evening, everybody. We've got the technology working now. It's always a good start. So I'm going to be talking a little bit around the genetics, particularly around inherited retinal dystrophies. And I appreciate there may be a range of knowledge already in the audience. Um, and so what I'm going to do is give you the basics um, so that hopefully that gives a good introduction for everybody. Um, and then obviously, if there's any extra detail needed, we're happy to help with that. So... If we talk about our genetic material, what we really mean is all the instructions that tell our body how to grow, develop and function. And that includes very much how the eye works and the vision that we use. So our genetic material is enclosed within the cells of our body. And we've got millions of cells or trillions, actually. Um, and that's DMV genetic material is enclosed within those cells. And if you look down a microscope at them, you can see it split into these structures called chromosomes. And those chromosomes are made up of DNA. And so I mentioned these terms because you may have heard them previously. You know, most people have heard of DNA. And short sections of DNA are our genes, and they're the individual instructions making the things that we need to make our bodies, including our eyes, work. So what does this mean um, in terms of inherited retinal dystrophies? Well, I've said already that you can see this genetic material split into chromosomes if you look down through a microscope. And this picture shows the chromosomes in different form. I appreciate it's a bit blurry, but hopefully it gives you a bit of an idea what it would look like. 
So we can look at these chromosomes and line them up by size. And what we can see then is that we have pairs of chromosomes. We have two copies of each of these chromosomes. So here you can see they are just sort of individual wiggly line, whereas in the previous diagram, they look like an X shape and they can be in uniform. The reason we have two copies of each of these chromosomes is because we get one from our mum and one from our dad. And that will become important as we go through and think about how things are inherited through families. So we have 22 pairs that are numbered from one to 22, basically by size from, from largest to smallest. And those are the same between men and women. And then the last pair that you can see in the bottom right of the screen are what are called the sex chromosomes. And these differ between men and women. So in biological men, they have one long X chromosome and a short Y chromosome. And in women, they have two long X chromosomes. And that'll become important a bit later on. So I said already that our genes are the individual instructions um, that tell our body how to work. So they encode a protein that works within the body. And it's when we have changes in those genes that we can have these inherited conditions. And different changes cause different conditions and are inherited through families in different ways. So I'm now going to talk about the main ways that things are inherited through families. And this will be different for different conditions. So this is quite a lot of information um, to sort of get in one go if you haven't heard any of this before. But hopefully it gives you a basis um, if you haven't heard it before and we can readdress any points as we go through. So how are things inherited through families? So some conditions are inherited in what's called an autosomal dominant way. And so, for example, um, some retinitis pigmentosa is inherited in this way. And in, that, in this case, as I said, we have two copies of our chromosomes and therefore two copies of each of our genes. But if we get a variant in one copy, and that's really just like a spelling mistake, that means the instruction doesn't work properly, um, that would cause the condition. So even though we've still got one working copy, having a variant in one of the copies is enough to cause the condition. So in this case, certain types of retinitis pigmentosa. And the reason for that is either that the one copy that's still working isn't enough on its own, or it can be um, that the spelling mistake, the variant in the one copy sort of interrupts the, other, the way the other one works. And so what does this mean when we inherit things through families? So if somebody has an autosomal dominant uh, form of retinitis pigmentosa or another condition, um, they can pass this on to their children. So each time somebody has a child, they will pass on either one or the other copy at random and the child will get the other copy from their other parent. And so when somebody with an autosomal dominant condition has a child, they can either pass on the copy with the variant, which isn't working properly, or they can pass on the other copy, which is working fine. Now that child will get a second copy from their other parent, which we would assume usually would be working fine because these are rare conditions. Um, you know, if somebody is um, affected by the same condition, then it would be slightly different, but I'm just going to focus on this example for tonight. And so if somebody has one of these conditions, there's a 50-50 chance for each child that they have that they would inherit that gene variant and therefore be affected by the same condition. And that happens each time somebody has a child. Um, so the effect for the first child wouldn't affect the, it, for the second child. So you could have two who are unaffected or two who are affected or one of each. It's all often slightly more complicated than that um, because sometimes these show in different ways in different individuals. So some people might show less symptoms or slightly different symptoms, but broadly that's the way that it's inherited through families. So that's autosomal dominant inheritance. Many inherited retinal dystrophies are inherited in a different way. 
and this is known as autosomal recessive inheritance. And in this case, both copies of the gene have to not be working properly in order for the condition to develop. So um, I've represented that again here. We imagine each of these blocks is one copy of the gene with the black box representing the fact the gene isn't working properly. So how does this happen? How does somebody end up with two copies that aren't working properly? So this is usually because they inherit this from their parent. So the parent again has two copies of the gene, but one of them is working absolutely fine and the other one has the variant that stops it from working properly. So they do not have the symptoms, they don't have the vision loss or whatever symptoms are related to the condition, but they do carry the variant that's not working properly. So they're known as a carrier for the condition. And if two people are carriers for the same condition, there's a chance that they could have a child that's affected by this condition. So as we said already, each time they have a child, they'll pass on either one or other copy of the gene um, that's associated with it, whichever condition it might be. And what that means, if you work it through step by step, is there's actually four different possibilities for each child, each time they have a child. So the first possibility is that both parents pass on the copy that's working absolutely fine, there are no variants, and so they would not have the condition, they wouldn't have any vision loss or other symptoms, and they also don't carry the condition, so they can't pass it to their children. The second option would be that the first parent passes on the copy that's working okay, and the second parent passes on the copy that isn't working as well. And so again, that child has one copy of the gene that's working okay, so they wouldn't show the condition, but they're carriers for the condition because they also have a copy that has the variant. The third option is the same, but I guess the other way around. So this time the first parent passes on the copy that isn't working and the second parent passes on the copy that is. And so that child would also be unaffected, but be a carrier. And then the fourth possibility is that both parents pass on the copy of the gene that isn't working properly. And so they would have the condition. And as I said already, this is quite a few different types of inherited retinal dystrophy. So some types of retinitis pigmentosa are included, uh, but others that you may have also heard of, so Bardet-Beadle syndrome, some types of rod cone dystrophy or cone rod dystrophy. Um, and so this is quite common um, amongst the inherited retinal dystrophy. So that explains how somebody might end up um, with these autosomal recessive forms, because mum and dad are both carriers. But what about when that person goes on to have a child themselves? So as we said already, they have the two copies, both of which have the variant and aren't working, that isn't working properly. And again, we're gonna make the assumption just for this scenario that their partner um, does not have any variants in these genes because these are rare conditions. And so what that means is that the person with the condition will always pass on a copy that isn't working properly. And the other parent um, in this scenario passes on a copy that's working okay. And so that means that all of the children of this couple would be carriers for the condition. They wouldn't have the condition themselves, but they would be carriers and therefore potentially have a child that's affected. So that's the second main way that things can be inherited through families. And then the third way that things can be inherited through families comes back to those sex chromosomes that I mentioned earlier, where there's a difference between biological men and biological women as to the chromosomes that they have in their body. So on the left, I've represented the chromosomes in men You've got the one long X chromosome um, and alongside that you've got the shorter Y chromosome. And so where the black box is, that shows where the gene would be with a variant um, that isn't working properly. And so you can see in the diagram that we represented it because the male doesn't have a second gene copy because they don't effectively have that part of the chromosome. 
So men only have one copy of the gene. And so if that gene has one of these variants which stops it from working properly, that means that they will be showing the condition because they don't have another copy that works to make up for that. For women, it's a bit different. And we show that situation on the right-hand side. And that's where the woman has two long X chromosomes. So therefore she has two copies of this gene. And so if, for example, um, she has one copy that's working okay, but one copy with the variant, she wouldn't be showing the vision loss um, or other associated symptoms because she still has that working copy. But she's a carrier for the gene, as we discussed previously, for other types of inheritance. And so um, we don't see a lot of inherited retinal dystrophies that are X-linked, but again, there are some forms, for example, of retinitis pigmentosa that are inherited in this way, and there are one or two others as well. And so what does this mean for somebody who has this condition or who carries this condition um, and they go on to have children? So again, we can't go through every single scenario, um, but if we first of all think about a man who's affected by this condition, what does this mean? So this um, is affected by whether he has a son or a daughter. So the daughter would have to have two X chromosomes. So she inherits one from her mum and one from her dad. Now, dad's X chromosome has the copy that isn't working properly. So that's all he can pass on. And then we're assuming that she's going to inherit a copy that's working properly from mum. And so therefore, every time a man with this condition has a daughter, she would be a carrier for the condition, but would not have it herself. If, he has, if this man has a son, I apologize, actually an error in this diagram. So if, if um, this man were to have a son, he would pass on the Y chromosome, because that's what makes the child a boy. And then they would inherit a copy of the gene from mum. And so therefore the man is not going to pass this on to his son. So a man with a condition, um, all of his sons would be unaffected by this condition. Then thinking about the situation for the woman that we were talking about before, that she has two copies of the gene, one of which has the variant. So she's a carrier for the condition. So again, it's quite complex thinking through how this might be passed down from parent to child. So again, it's the chromosome that's inherited from dad that determines um, if the child is going to be a boy or a girl. So if dad passes down the copy, his X chromosome, and the child will also get an X chromosome from mum. She's going to end up with two X chromosomes and be a girl. And there's a 50-50 chance that she'll inherit the gene that isn't working properly from mum. So 50-50 chance for the daughter of this woman that she would be a carrier for the condition, but she wouldn't be affected. For a son, dad passes down his Y chromosome, and then there's a 50-50 chance where the mum passes down a copy that's working as we would expect, in which case the boy would not have the condition, but there's a 50-50 chance he would pass on the copy with a variant. Um, and so that means the child would have the condition. There's four different possible outcomes there for a woman who is a carrier for this condition. Now, I appreciate that's quite confusing when you first go through it all together, particularly as we talk about lots of different ways of inheriting things all at the same time. But hopefully that gives you some idea of how these things are passed down through families um, and what that means, uh, particularly for the children of people who are affected. And then just to talk a little bit around the genetic testing and the genetic counselling aspects. So first of all, genetic testing, what, what's the purpose of genetic testing? So the test itself is to see if we can find these variants um, in these genes that stop them from working properly and therefore cause these conditions. So it's usually done from a blood sample from which the DNA can be extracted. And then we can look through the different genes that are associated with inherited retinal dystrophies to see if we can identify one of these variants. So they test a lot of different genes. Um, the panels do change all the time, but they usually 
routinely test somewhere around between two and 300 genes um, in one go um, to see if we can identify some of these variants. And the reason for doing that is because if we can identify um, the specific variant that causes this in an individual, that helps us to understand why this is happening, which can be useful. Um, it also helps us to work out how it's being inherited through families. You know, we just talked about how complicated it is if we're not sure of the way it's passed down through families, and this will give us some information. And it also can be useful for sort of treatment and management. And we're going to be hearing a bit more about that um, from Professor Marcella a bit later on. So um, it can be really helpful for that. And that can also include access um, to research studies as well. So genetic testing might be offered through um, various different individuals. That might be through the ophthalmology department, for example, or it might be that you come to a genetics department to arrange that testing. Um, just to say, it's quite a lengthy process. It takes quite a long time to get a result, and we don't always find the variant that causes this condition. In fact, quite commonly, we still struggle to identify the variant, and that's because there's still a lot that we don't know yet about genetics. Um, but our knowledge hopefully will increase over time, because as we've said, it's important both for families to understand why this is happening, but also for treatments um, in particular. And what about genetic counselling? So you may or may not have heard or experienced genetic counselling, but this um, is carried out by people such as myself. So I am a genetic counsellor at the Orwell's Medical Genomic Service, uh, where we meet individuals with genetic conditions or who have family members with genetic conditions to help them understand a bit more about the condition and about how it is passed through families. And it's around helping them to sort of understand that information, understand what it means for them, adapt to that and adjust their lives accordingly. And also to talk about things like patterns of inheritance. Um, so what the risks might be to children, what options might be available for people. And then importantly, it's also to um, provide some support within that appointment, but signpost on to additional support um, for families. So they can have more of an ongoing um, input from others if needed. So it's not, you know, psychological counselling, it's not a long-term relationship, but it's helping sort of it bring in that information, do um, use some counselling aspects to help um, patients adapt and make informed decisions. And then, as I say, to signpost on, and that's, for example, where Retina UK may come in, in terms of providing appropriate support uh, for families who are dealing with this. Reproductive risks are one of the things that we do talk about, and that's why I've talked quite a lot about that today, um, for, for people to understand what the risks might be to their children. But it's also about wider family. And something else we do work quite hard on is helping families to communicate um, with other family members in order um, to appreciate what it might mean for their wider family. So I'm going to stop there. Hopefully that's given you um, some information around the way things are inherited through families. And I'm very happy to take any questions. That's fantastic. Um, thank you so much, Nicola. Really appreciate that. Um, so I'm going to hand over to um, Kate. Um, but just for my people, if they do want to ask questions, there are a number of ways um, that they can do that. They can either raise their hand. Um, and the ways to raise their hand, um, if you're on a Windows computer, you can press Alt and Y. Um, if you're on a Mac, it's Option and Y, um, or as I say, you can just press the Reactions button and raise your hand. Um, alternatively, you can type any of your questions in the Q&A section. But over to Kate. Thank you very much, and um, thank you ever so much for that very, very clear walkthrough, um, all of the different situations that people can find themselves in, all those different inheritance patterns. Um, as you say, it is quite a lot, I think, for people to take in in one go, but that was a really clear, simple 
um, explanation of all those different situations. So thank you very much for that. Um, we haven't got any questions at the moment. I was just going to ask you, um, is the service in Wales currently seeing people online if they have a genetic counselling appointment? Um, yes. Yeah, so we're still mostly seeing people online or by telephone if that's more suitable for people. Um, we are moving back a bit more now to face-to-face -to -face appointments if that's what people prefer. Um, and we are trying to do that around patient choice. Um, whilst, of course, the pandemic has had many, many negatives, um, one of the positives has been to bring on more options for people to be seen. And hope we're going to keep those as we move forward if that's more suitable for people. Yeah, because that, that kind of leads on, actually, what I was going to say was I don't know what the kind of clinic availability is in Wales in normal time, you know, if it wasn't pandemic. And, and for example, obviously, you've got very good services in Cardiff. But if you live up in North Wales, is that uh, is there sort of access there to face to face appointments? Sure. Um, so there's three main centres for the genetic service in Wales. There is one up in North Wales that's based right. in Rail. Um, but what we also do is outreach clinics to some of the sort of more district general hospitals. Okay. Um, and so in normal times, then absolutely people are able to access that more locally to them. Um, I'm afraid, as with many NHS services, the waiting list can be quite long. Um, but we are also hoping that by having the option of video or phone for some patients, if that's what they prefer, that that would also help a little bit to manage that a bit better. OK, great. And people, um, presumably, if they're not currently under the care of an ophthalmologist, can ask their GP to refer them into the genetic counselling service or genetic service. That's absolutely right. So, um, you know, ophthalmology, we have good relationships with already, of course, uh, but we do receive referrals from GPs. And that can be for somebody who perhaps, you know, knows that they may be at risk of some conditions, um, you know, and it can be relatives and friends. So, you know, GPs are able to refer in um, and we're able to manage that. Absolutely. Perfect. Great. Um, we haven't actually got any questions coming in from anybody. So um, that's fine. I hope you've seen us. Say one more thing, Kate. So just to say that, I mean, on the Retina UK website, there is a lot of information around the genetic testing and genetic counselling. So um, if anyone sort of wants a bit of a reminder, because it's a lot to take in in one go, that's a good place to start. Yeah, we have got a lot. We've got a new sort of sub site, a micro site, if you like, called Unlock Genetics. Um, and actually, yes, thank you for making that point. That's <laughs> appreciated. And um, you can go to www.retinauk.org.uk forward slash genetics, and that will put you straight into the area of our website that's got all the genetics information. Um, so thank you very much. I'll hand back to Matt and he can take us forward. Wonderful. Thank you to Nicola and Kate there. Um, so next on our lineup for this evening, um, I would like to hand over to Professor Marcella. Thank you very much indeed. So I hope you can see my first slide and I hope you can see that full screen. Thank you so much for asking me to talk. And it's a real pleasure to talk to people, uh, hopefully in Wales, but maybe wider community of patients and uh, individuals interested in retinal disease and genes. Um, basically, as an ophthalmologist, I see patients in an inherited eye disease clinic, but that spans both retinal and optic nerve and other uh, parts of the eye. So I thought I could try in 15 minutes, which is very ambitious, to summarise a little bit about the retinal dystrophies, <laughs> talk about some of the genes, not in any detail, and what's going to happen in therapy. 
And in fact, you've stolen my thunder because the Retina UK website is something I was going to mention as an absolute beacon um, and highlight. It really has got such a lot of information. So if you're looking for any advice on the basic genetics or a recap of what we've said, but also information about research, uh, research projects, ongoing projects, and also interviews and, and comments from patients and subjects who've taken part in research, it's such a wealth. And I think um, I want to just say thank you, actually, to Retina UK. I think um, the people I've been uh, pointing to the site have actually enjoyed looking at it. So um, I don't have uh, any payment to do anything for any one particular drug company for research or uh, other than for the um, very rare talk I might have given. <laughs> which isn't very often from a drug company, because as you know, there are very few therapies in this area yet. Well, I have slides where I'm going to make sure I uh, speak about every item. And if there's text on those slides, you won't miss it if you're not able to read it quickly or efficiently. I've tried to minimize this. Um, so we know inherited retinal disease genes now have been an incredible area of a new advancement with our understanding of the biology of the retina and technical advances. And that's really an explosion with potentially more than 50 studies in inherited retinal dystrophies on clinical trials databases. Now, that sounds superficially very, very exciting, but we need to take a breath in and actually realize that they're all at a very, very early phase. And some of them aren't even reporting any outcomes. I'll come to all that. But there are significant costs um, to be uh, incurred in developing these treatments for a small target population. So it will be a very complex challenge. The big practical steps, I'm very grateful um, for um, the previous speaker talking about the real major aim of talking about genetic testing and counseling uh, being offered to all our patients. So this is what really should be our big goal. It's totally achievable, I think. And we know the mutations currently affecting inherited retinal dystrophy genes could currently, the known genes account for 60 to 90% of individuals. The figures vary a lot in different sources, but we need to understand the natural history of each condition so that we can um, progress in terms of thinking of how we could treat it as well. So I'm going to very um, superficially tell you what the retinal disease genes are and the diseases themselves. There can't be any level of real detail here. And I've avoided giving you lots and lots of pictures of the back of the eye, which to a non-expert probably would all look the same. <laughs> so, um, so the first retinal disease gene was discovered over 30 years ago, and now we know of more than 270. And the commonest is retinitis pigmentosa as a group of conditions with a prevalence of between, well, one in 300, sorry, one in 3,500 people which is actually surprisingly common, affecting over 2 million individuals worldwide. Before we talk about um, the, uh, the, disease the diseases and genes, I want to also introduce some concepts about what we would need to do to do clinical trials to test new treatments. So you need to be familiar with um, what is a phase one, two, three or four trial. Now I'm gonna keep it really basic because at the end of the day it is, but you don't need to read what's on here. A phase one trial only establishes that something has a potential effect. And it's usually done with a tiny number of people, six to 10. 
sometimes fewer. And those are people who may even just be healthy volunteers, but it's testing um, the, the effect of the treatment. Phase two studies tend to look at whether it's safe and effective, starting to look at whether it's effective. And normally there could be 20 or 50 people in that sort of study. But it's still a very small number and 50 is probably way too many for some of the rare diseases we're talking about here today. A phase three study is what you really aim for, which is where we have large numbers of people. We're talking about whether it's safe and effective. And this is what you often hear of as a randomized double blind placebo controlled trial, a bit of a mouthful where some people get the treatment, others don't. They don't know which one they're getting. Um, it's got to be designed that way to be really scientifically rigorous. And a phase four study is you're really happy there because the drug's been approved, the therapy's out there, the treatment's there. You just want to see what it looks like in the real world. You know, the people uh, like you and my uh, patients, uh, the people who come to our, to, to our clinics. So phase one, two trials is really where we're still at with most things. And they've been initiated across the whole range of these diseases and genes to augment the gene that's def deficient or to knock down the gene if it shouldn't be doing what it is, to deliver drugs like the visual cycle inhibitors, which help photoreceptors to work. Um, it can be delivering um, what are called oligonucleotides for RNA to modify the RNA. Now, you'll have probably all heard of RNA, not because a year ago you wouldn't have done, but you will have done recently because we've got RNA vaccines. And now we're all hearing about this so much more. This is um, a revolution in terms of how we can um, modify the way that genes express themselves. And other trials have been initiated where they can use a small molecule to help get over the mutation. Um, or others which are called gene editing. And I know those of you who are interested in this will come across that because that's a very big term at the moment um, that allows you to somehow modify the, the code of the gene. And then there are therapies that could be derived from stem cells or retinal progenitor cells. So that all is extremely exciting, but all the trials are relatively early, bar one, which I'll talk about. And this little cartoon just tells us how you start with just a few patients and you expand it and then you might need a lot more patients and ultimately obviously you have a therapy that works that's what we all hope for so very quickly i'll talk about some macular dystrophies and generalized retinal dystrophies and then we'll come back to the to the trials um macular dystrophies are affecting the central retina with an abnormal vision bilateral symmetrical and um not going to de give details, but many of you may have heard of Stargardt disease or retinoschisis or Sorsby's disease or pattern dystrophy. These are all examples of things that can affect the macula. It, the biggest one in the UK is Stargardt disease caused by mutations in a gene called ABCA4, which is generally recessive. And here there has been a lot of activity in trials, but there's a pharmacological treatment tried um, at a very early stage, and then some cell replacement strategies are being tried. It has to be said that they haven't as yet proved really major advances, but there is a huge hope for the gene therapy trial that might be possible now, because it's been possible to redesign the way it can be delivered to the eye now, and it might, might be on, on for starting. So that trial 
it's been long awaited and patients with Stargardt disease, which is quite common in the UK, have all been asking about that if they have that condition. And I think it will be exciting to see how that progresses. But the other conditions, we're really not that far advanced. Um, I can obviously uh, direct you to the Retina UK site and other sites uh, where uh, particularly things relating to research are often reflected. So some of the eye charities. A subset of what we call macular problems are cone dystrophies, where it, it's affecting just the cones that help you to see fine detail and colour. These are much rarer conditions, and they present very early with very poor vision, colour vision problems, wobbly eyes and sensitivity to the light. Um, one example is a condition called achromatopsia caused by genes CNGB3 and CNGBA. You don't need to remember. And there are some very early phase one, two studies just testing whether it would be possible in man, um, but still at a very, very early stage. But, you know, we have to start somewhere. Um, another group of macular problems include cone and rod dystrophies, where both cones and rods are affected. And here, again, there's a similar picture of central vision problems, sensitivity to the light, color vision disturbance, and really these can be dominant or recessive or X-linked. I don't think there's any way you can memorize, and why should you, any of the names of these genes, but I think it's important to just convey the richness and the complexity and the numbers of genes, so that if you see an ophthalmologist or an eye care professional, they can't tell you by looking in your eye which gene it is on, on the whole. Um, they can define what it looks like clinically and then subdivide that into the type of condition you have. And then when genetic testing is performed, that really reveals which gene it might be. And then going on, we have a bigger subgroup of retinal dystrophies, which are called sometimes rod cone dystrophies. But to you and me, really, this is what we think of as retinitis pigmentosa. And this is the commonest by and large as a group. And remember, it's a group, it isn't one gene. Really, we actually think there are more than 100 genes just for this classic type RP. Uh, maybe one in 3,000 to 4,000 people have it in the population, classically presenting with night blindness, constricted field of vision, and sometimes a cataract and swelling in the retina develop, and they can get this dominantly or recessively or X-linked. So the complexity, you know, it, it, without the genetic testing, we wouldn't be making any of this progress. So it's really helpful. And there's even a further group of genes that are known to cause a mixed rod cone dystrophy or RP type of problem. So these genes include I won't read them really off the slide, but rhodopsin, which was the first one, RPGR, some people have heard of, RP2, um, ushers, USH2A, and myosin, myo7A. So knowing which gene is affected in any one individual or in yourself is just the first step, but it's an immensely powerful and hugely important first step to revealing the knowledge that's going to be needed if, you, if you're going to take part uh, in any treatment or uh, even in research. And I feel it's really important to emphasize that when people are seen and diagnosed, they own that genetic knowledge. So um, we always try to give you a, a copy of, of something in writing, 
either the letter with the actual diagnosis and the gene name and so on, so that you can keep that in your own files. Because often patients um, have said to me that they're really interested in research and they do a lot of reading. So they need to know where they fit in. And again, the Retina UK website really helps with that as well. So what are the therapy approaches? We could um, go back historically, just briefly, is in RP, Early on, some people thought, let's try this thing called neurotrophic support. It's a bit like sort of giving a nutritional growth factor to the retina using um, a substance that was at the time postulated to be really helpful, CNTF. And this went to a, a phase two, three trial. So this excited a huge amount of interest. Sadly, it didn't show therapy benefit. And it just goes to show that, you know, it takes time to develop these things. And then more recently, a phase one study, this is the very earliest phase, is now looking at um, a very simple drug, N-acetylcysteine, NAC, some people call it, in patients with RP, because there's been an indication that in a small group, these patients might have developed over a longer period of time a slightly better overall long-term preservation of vision. But it was a tiny study and a really good proper randomized trial with the larger numbers of patients is being planned. So it's too soon to jump on a bandwagon, I would say, because you obviously just don't know. And we don't know the long-term side effects of some things. So sometimes it's a dangerous thing to just assume because there's a new treatment, it will work. And you know we can't assume that. I'll just mention the one thing that there's the beacon of light, if you like, there is a gene therapy out there. And that is for the European Medicine Agency, and the uh, American agency approved a drug, which is called Luxterna for a condition called RP65 retinal dystrophy. This is where young children and young adults get very severe, very early onset and, and quite massively devastating vision loss. It's, it's probably one of the severer forms of retinal degeneration. And this drug is now um, a gene therapy available, approved by NICE, um, and Novartis is supplying this um, and it's available in the UK. We have been recruiting small numbers of patients because it's rare um, and it's looking really exciting. So it's a real glimmer of hope because if this is a proof that it will work as a principal gene therapy, the next steps will become easier and easier. And this early onset, very severe problem there were many other genes that could be targeted. So you can see that it's not going to be one size fits all. And there's another drug that many of you, uh, another therapy that many of you might be excited about, which was this uh, condition called choroideremia, whereby there's been a lot of activity in finding um, a gene therapy for this. Um, there's been quite a few studies at phase one and phase two using gene therapy replacement. And there's actually a phase three study now ongoing. And that's really exciting because that suggests that things will develop next and patients with choroideremia might have access to a therapy realistically within the next few years. So the clinical trials landscape, if we want to call it that, really shows an explosion of genetic information and possible approaches. There's so many different approaches. But if we just stop and think, how can we possibly design therapies for each gene in turn, one by one? That's just utterly nightmarish. People are now saying, actually, there may be cleverer ways to do this. 
let's not focus just on the gene or the mutation. Can we find things that are more generic where a type of advanced therapy could be used in a whole range of these retinal degenerations? Uh, this could be either protecting the photoreceptors, neuroprotection, or restoring therapy using some sort of cellular transplantation. Uh, and that is an area of real active interest. The next thing people are saying is, we've got very, very rare conditions here, very few patients. Uh, we do need to think more carefully about what people are calling outcome measures, how we assess whether it works well or not. Is it clinically meaningful to the patient? Do they think it works better for them or not? Is it valid, reliable, sensitive to change? And can we design better ways of working behind the scenes with the statistical analysis to help decide whether it works or not? So this is a really big effort internationally, um, and it's really advancing these trials. Um, it may take years to prove that a therapy works, but each time it's proven, the next steps for the next therapy probably get easier. And that's a really hopeful uh, view of things, although it still takes time. And there are a couple of basic things that I also want to say. I think it's truly important that this is all very ethically driven, that patients have the autonomy with informed consent. So they know what they're consenting to if they're in a trial or a study that we do no harm, because that's really important. If a new therapy actually ends up blinding somebody, then of course it's a disaster. And that it's fair and accessible. And we need to give people guidance now about such a lot of other things. People are often asking about, what about the role of taking antioxidants or red light or protecting yourself from blue light or electrical stimulation? These studies have by and large not been done and it's tremendously tempting to go on a website and try some of these. And while some may not be dangerous, I would be very wary if they involve anything interventional. Um, so there are some really quirky new ideas out there for how we could revolutionize new treatments. Um, I found these and I'm not gonna kind of go through this, but there's one that purports to be able to use naked DNA gene therapy delivered using a laser. And initially, of course, that sounds too good to be true until you read the paper, which was published in a good journal, um, and you realize that this could be the beginning of something new. Um, so, you know, we should be very open to new ways of doing all of this. So just summarizing then, we need to think about these new therapies for these conditions by thinking of priorities and recommendations First of all, we need good information about what's going on in the disease with patients, natural history, how to design the trials, how we measure the outcomes so that they're meaningful to patients, how we standardize the outcomes, how we get over one of the biggest problems with gene therapy, which is sometimes causes inflammation in the eye. I mean, I haven't mentioned a lot of side effects here, but that's the one that people are worried about. How we treat children, especially so that they get equal access if it's appropriate, how we give advice and how we actually promote transparency and accountability. And rare diseases, of course, are particularly challenging if there are small numbers of individual patients in any one category. And I've mentioned already, we need this natural history information, meaningful endpoints, trial design. This is all the same, really. And I don't expect you to read the tiny text because even I can't see it, but this title, The Uphill Battle, 
from bench to bedside, designing a new therapy. Uh, there's a fantastic uh, Bright Focus Foundation, US um, foundation, saying what we all really know is it can take anything up to 10, 15, 20 years it used to take to get a new treatment out there. This is getting faster, but it's still not going to happen in significantly less than maybe five to 10 years. Um, and that's because there's such a lot of wastage in the system in that new treatments are tried and they fail. So you have to try the next one, unless you're very, very fortunate. And in terms of access, Paul's going to talk next about uh, some of these issues relating to costs, but there's a, a European Alliance for Transformative Therapies, which is seeking to bring together uh, both patients, uh, patient organizations, members of parliament, MEPs, patient groups, and medical experts to talk about how gene therapies and advanced therapies could be delivered. Not about the, the science, but about the practical issues, because those will be huge. Accessibility, deliverability, and affordability. Those will be big problems once we have more and more of these treatments. So I think that takes us to where I think Paul might be going, because obviously those will be the practical issues around delivery. Imagine that the science has delivered and the therapy is there. That doesn't mean it's going to be out there in the clinic. Um, and if we have, you know, if we have the expertise now, we can refine it and make it faster and better, but we'll still have to deliver it in the real world. Thanks very much. Thank you. Sorry, I was just having some technical issues. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, that was a really, really good overview, I think, of everything um, that is going on um, in in the field at the moment. And, and there is so much going on. Um, I'm just trying to get up my participant list. Um, do feel free to raise your hands, people, if you'd like to ask a question live. Um, one question just while we're, we're waiting for anybody. Um, so many of our community are obviously, and as you know, so frustrated by the length of time it takes to get these treatments through. And, and a, a lot of the time people say to us, but the, the COVID vaccines have come so fast. Is, is that going to change anything? Is, is that gonna make any difference? Can you see that that will, will transfer to any acceleration in, 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 our, in our conditions? I'm sure Paul can comment on this too, because he's been working on some of this, but absolutely because RNA vaccines, as I mentioned, now everyone naturally has heard of RNA. <laughs> That's a massive change. Um, the idea that you can change the expression of a gene using RNA therapy rather than DNA takes us to a different level. And I, what I pointed out that we used to have this very traditional view of gene therapy. Each would be one gene at a time, for each disease, well, we could be doing this until kingdom come. So if we can think of more generic therapies and some of those around gene editing as well are coming through, that, that they'll definitely change the, the speed of progress. Um, I know Paul has, I mean, he can do it maybe when he's starting his talk, but Paul has some experience around this. Um, he's put something in the chat, I think. Yeah, he's, he's just put um, COVID RNA vaccines. Oh, it's disappeared again. Uh, Paul, feel free to, to, to say what you... Yes, well, it's a very important point, isn't it? I think, as I'll explain, um, the big difference is um, the challenge in eye disease is that we're mainly dealing with a quality of life issue. And the problem with, for example, COVID or cancer is it's an immediate threat to your length of life issue. 
And I think this is about the balance of risks and benefits. And this is why I want to talk because um, I'm a, a, a core lecturer for the European School of Oncology, work on affordable drug design, run an NHS cancer trials unit, um, and have an interest in where next, because testing is not treatment. And we have to have a very clear idea of where we're going so as not to make the mistakes that will delay things for too long. And that's really my interest and particularly spurred because it's clear that with recent assessments, for example, of the All Wales Medicines uh, Reimbursement Board, that the lack of understanding of the natural history of some retinal diseases made it very difficult to know the value of treatment. And this will be one of the key things that I'm going to cover uh, tonight. Okay, thank you very much um, for that for that extra input there, Paul. Um, don't don't have any other questions. I, I was just going to say, how how do clinical? I mean, firstly, how do people take part or say that they want to take part in clinical trial? I'm sure I'm sure I know that a lot of our community are really keen to take part in research. What's the best way, other than keeping an eye on what's going on? Can their ophthalmologist put them forward? What's the, do they need referring to a trial centre? Can you explain a little bit about how that would happen if there was a clinical trial that they might be able to do? Absolutely. So one of the things at the moment is phase one and phase two studies need five to 10 patients. And in rare diseases, it's probably rarely going to get above 15. And um, most of the studies are in this stage. And those patients, well, for the phase one studies, they can even be normal volunteers or it's been proposed for phase one, they should be people who've got nothing to lose, i.e. virtually no sight left. Yeah. <laughs> I know many patients are very altruistic and are really keen to, to, to do that. Um, but the thing to point out is that when they are recruited to any study above two, phase two and phase three, what the center or the trial is looking for is a population of patients who are almost identical to each other. <laughs> um, they have the same gene mutated, obviously, they may have more than one different mutation, but they have perhaps the same stage of disease so that when the treatment is given, you can assess whether it's worked or not, because that's hard enough as it is without having everybody at a different stage of their disease. Right. So patients are really rigorously assessed as to whether they're suitable. That's not whether we like you or not, or whether you're you know, wearing the right colored hat. You've really got to fit what are called inclusion and exclusion criteria for the trial. And that can be really challenging because they may really only want to have patients at one stage of that disease. And sadly, if you're either before that or after that, it, it, it's not possible to take part in the trial. And you may say, why not? Well, because if you recruit everyone, that's, when you do the statistics at the end, you won't be able to see whether it's worked or not. So yeah. when it's a trial, it's a trial. That's the difference, isn't it? And it's got to be yeah. done in a way that is once and for all going to show whether it works. What we don't want is lots of murky water. So patients being recruited, how do they do it? You're right. Initially, those tiny numbers, they don't get much benefit from being in a phase one, phase two trial. The phase three study, there could be arguably some benefits. And that's where patients are called for nationally quite frequently through the website of the organization or the funder or the place that's doing the trial or through a call in the community. And the ophthalmologist can then uh, right. So frequently we might write to a centre saying we've got a patient with this condition, very interested in research. I know you might have a study. Could you put them on your books? They've been, they've sometimes been examined. They, they come back and they're kind of waiting in limbo to see what happens. So that's the way to progress. I know it seems rather 
um, well, I wouldn't say ad hoc, but you know, it's not a perfect system yet. But if there's a therapy, of course, that becomes you know a different kettle of fish. Absolutely, yeah. And I think I think probably what I would say to people is just keep saying to your ophthalmologist, you know, keep keep visiting an ophthalmologist, and 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 then at those appointments say you know is there anything going on i'm really keen to take part and 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 perhaps just keep pushing yourself forward so we've been so lucky in wales i would say to people if you can bear the once a year visit <laughs> please come okay. um because you're right being uh, being there means you're more uh, able to see what's going on quickly being out in the community uh you know can feel very lonely yeah and um, we have actually got a, a question from sam thank you sam um, if a treatment gets approval, so it's successful in its trial process and, and becomes more widely available, how is the treatment prioritised then for those that it's suitable for? Well, it, it's not prioritised if it's approved because it'll have been approved on the basis of certain criteria already, i.e. this is the group of patients who are eligible for this treatment because we've seen that this is the group of patients that will benefit Paul will cover this a lot more. And once um, approval is given by a European Medicines Agency regulator or a European regulator or NICE approves it, um, they, they will lay down the criteria and, and rightly so. I'll give you an example with IPV65, Luxturner gene therapy for this very early onset retinal dystrophy. There are criteria about um, if the vision is below a certain standard, you won't benefit from it. If you yeah. don't have a certain area of normal retina, that's defined really closely, which is quite generous. It's not, you know, it's not meant to be nasty. If you don't have that, then it's not going to help you because it won't restore what isn't there. It then talks about uh, making sure that um, there aren't any other diseases and so on. So it's not a case of prioritizing patients once the therapy is available. It's more about making sure they fit the, the type of patient that will benefit basically. And one of the problems is, if somebody hasn't got any central vision left and you're treating a disease where the central vision is the problem, yeah. of course, a gene therapy isn't going to make a difference. So it's going to be very important to convey to individual patients what this therapy can and cannot achieve. Mm -hmm. uh, some therapies might in the future work on transplanting cells or, or they might be able to restore. Some will maintain and some will aim to maintain and stop progression. And yeah. these are all very different trajectories for an individual patient. Yeah. And I think uh, organisations like Retin UK obviously have a really important part to play in managing expectations. So it's our communication needs to be very clear so that our community know that they're coming to us to find the truth, you know, what what's really can be achieved or can't be achieved. And I, I think that's something for us to always remember. Um, thank you very much, Marcella. I think that leads really nicely onto Paul, actually. Um, Matt, I didn't know if you wanted to pop back and, and introduce um, Paul, but um, I'll, uh, I'll let you get on with, with doing that. Yeah, thanks, Kate, and thanks, Marcella. That's um, you know, a really good presentation. It kind of just brings in the, the, the key points that we're, we're really looking for. Uh, and again, thanks, Paul, for uh, for coming in to answer some of those questions. So um, I would very much like to hand over to uh, to Paul Corns um, for the uh, the next session this evening. Very good. Can you see my screen? And we 
up and running with the technology. Yeah, we can see that. Very good. So look, um, what is an oncologist doing at a meeting like yours? And I'll tell you, uh, I'm, uh, you've heard, I've been an NHS cancer trials lead. I'm an oncologist. I'm, uh, I steer the working party on access to innovation in cancer treatment for the European School of Oncology, work on uh, drug design, sit on European Commission studies, but I have an interest in this. Um, uh, and as both of you have said, I have, um, I have a personal interest. I have uh, retinal disease in my family. And in terms of Kate's question about access in the North, my great grandfather was a GP in Snowdonia in the days when you rode the horse to see your patients. So I have a personal interest in the outcomes. And I'm going to cover an agenda here that looks at the lessons we've learned in cancer research that could be applicable to eye disease. Because you've heard it's very much in its infancy with genetic eye disease. There are just under 50 trials currently open. And I've just looked at our database. We currently have 17,361 trials open for cancer research. And Who's to say that might not be the future? So the first thing is to think about the impact of these diseases. I mean, here we are in 2021 worrying about eye disease when all the newspapers are talking about something else, COVID. So it's important to know that COVID is crucial. It's killing around 10,000 global citizens every day. But it's not the most important disease in the world because every day more than 25,000 people die of cancer or heart disease. And the other big diseases, diabetes, mosquito-borne diseases like malaria, have their impact too. And so just because we're concentrating on COVID doesn't mean we give up our trials and our plans for the future. Now, cancer may be the leading premature uh, cause of premature death in every country of the world. It affects around 18 million people a year, of which about half die. And we think it's going to rise because of the aging population to reach about 29 million people by the year 2040. But let's not think that eye disease is a little brother because 43 million people in the world are blind, near 300 million have moderate to severe visual impairment, and globally more than a billion people have to live with some level of visual loss. So I often explain to uh, advocates and politicians and investors in industry how we're going to make cancer a disease of the past, the world's biggest killer, as smallpox was perhaps 100 years ago. And here's our European cancer plan, came out this year. And we're going to improve outcomes through three very simple steps. We're going to prevent disease through lifestyle changes, and you can do that in eye disease. We can diagnose it early through screening when it's much easier to make a treatment. And anyone with diabetic retinal disease will give the answers to that problem. But the third point we're on about tonight is improving treatment. I want to give a big hooray to this idea of drug development. We believe that more than half the life years we've saved in cancer in the last 30 or 40 years have come from what we do, delivering better treatments in the clinics. As a result, the number of people who are dying prematurely of cancer each year falls year on year on year on year. Uh, we improve the uh, cure rate in Britain by about 1% a year and have done for the last 30 years. Now, if we extend that forward, if we can keep the innovation going that's been led in cancer for the next 30 years, something quite remarkable will happen. We will eliminate cancer as a cause of death in our under 80 population, which is astonishing when you think where we are today. And all it means is 
keeping this cycle of innovation running for the next 30 years as we've already achieved. It's nothing impossible. And it changes what we already do in the clinic. Now, this big step in making an accurate diagnosis is crucial. About a decade ago, we would typically approve four new cancer medicines every year. But the breakthrough in diagnostics, genomics, and all the advanced chemical tests means that we're delivering 10 new cancer medicines a year. And as Prof. Marcella told you, each medicine might in the end work on many diseases. So of those 10 new cancer medicines for 20 years, 20 new drugs, they have uh, impacted on more than 100 different cancers. So innovation can work and it changes, as I've said, the clinic. And you, know, you can see I've got what little hair I've got left is gray. When I started, cancer was very simple. The patient would say, Dr. Paul, what have I got? And I'd say, well, you have, for example, breast cancer because we can feel the tumor, the lump in your breast it was an anatomic diagnosis. But already things are changing. We have diagnostic markers, which we can use chemical stains to look at cells. And so I can now have an idea of what is perhaps driving a cancer. And I now know that breast cancer is more than 10 different diseases, just like you heard that retinitis pigmentosa is more than 100 diseases. So when the patient says, what have I got? We now say you have breast cancer type ABC. And each of those diseases has its own natural history, its own prognosis, and its own optimal treatment strategy such that treatments that we thought didn't work where we saw breast cancer as just one disease are now highly effective for different versions of that disease. Well, where are we heading? We're in the genomic era. And with the 100,000 Genome Project, we're trying to make a genetic diagnosis on every cancer patient. And here's the first generation map of the human cancer genome. And by finding the pathway that's been dysregulated in a tumor, we can find the best drug class to counter it. Now we don't have a, a, a drug in every one of those classes yet, but with 10 new drugs discovered every year, who can say? Well, what can we do already with that? Well, we can make a tumor disappear in as short as 11 days. Transforming medicine, you won't need surgery if that happens. Already by selecting the drugs that work, those that we have work six times better than they did before. And the idea of an underlying disease means that the pink ribbon of breast cancer will disappear. We'll explain that you have a tumor driven by a particular gene pathway pattern with its own treatment strategy. And a sensible patient will say, well, Dr. Paul, uh, as your, your questioner did, will the National Health Service cover that? And now we have a problem. None of those innovative drugs had a ticket price of less than around 110,000 pounds 150,000 US dollars. We have a problem. Just as we believe that we could eradicate cancer as a major public health problem in Europe within some people's lifetime at this meeting, we would fail not because we haven't conquered the science, but because we haven't managed the economics. And we have to make a case for cancer medicines along with eye disease and everyone else. The world currently spends around one and a half trillion dollars a year on medicines. Um, more than half the world's population takes at least one prescription medicine every day. It's a lot of money. So what lessons can we tell you that eye disease uh, management could learn? Well, I've told you that rational drug design 
needs a precision target to aim at, which is why it's crucial that all the patients get diagnosed. Now that's a problem for us in cancer. Only about 10% of people with familial cancer syndromes we think have probably been diagnosed yet. And then the second issue is affordability. And already the lessons are being learned. There are more than 300 precision drug targets ready for trials, but there seem to be some strange responses by the funding bodies. So an artificial nerve growth factor for corneal keratitis at a cost of £14,000 for a course of treatment is rejected by NICE. And yet Dr Nicola and Prof Kate will tell you that with the right version of RP, they will spend £613,000 worth of treatment on you with Lux Turner. Now, we were that way in the past. If I go back to uh, Fred 2007, not 2017, with 67 new cancer drugs on the market, the UK was bottom of all the European countries in access to novel medicines about 14 years ago. So I'm interested in, not in just developing the drugs, but in you getting, getting them launched and approved in each country. And take it from me, there's 190 countries in the world of which 160 belong to the WHO. And if I say of the last 54 innovative cancer drugs launched, in how many countries were at least 75% available and funded within two years of their approval? The answer is three nations of the world. And if I said how many had at least half the medicines approved, launched and funded, the answer is nine. And who are those three? Britain, Germany and America. It's a transformation within 15 years. We do it by having a specific high cost drugs fund ready for cancer. Costs us around 340 million pounds a year, and that has transformed the situation so that not only is Britain a developer of next generation cancer drugs and a trialist of them, but users of them too. And there's a lesson for us in eye disease. Now, how do we find that sort of money? Well, if you look at the prescriptions of health services, you'll find out that out of every 100 drugs prescribed, three are innovative novel medicines, but 97% of them have been in use for more than 10 years. Now that's important because a patent on a drug lasts about 10 years. And once that's up, other manufacturers can make competing drugs called generic and biosimilar versions. And you'll see that even a moderate price saving on 97% of drugs will deliver enormous amounts of money for your innovative medicines fund. And this is a WHO priority that I've been working at through their WHO cancer program. So we need a budget to expand access to innovation, whether it's cancer treatment or eye disease, and we have our current budget. And 10 times a year, we used to have to go to NICE and say, there's a new cancer drug. Remember, each drug will perhaps impact on 20 different cancers. We need 20 different reviews and 20 different budgets, please. And that meant we lagged behind by years. What we needed was a perpetual innovation fund to manage this expectation. And to fund it, we needed to take out from our budget each year savings that wouldn't compromise care and reinvest that into a recurring innovation fund. And in medicines, that's easy. Once patents expire, multiple manufacturers can make copies, generic and biosimilar medicines, the prices fall, and we make those savings. 
And this is number one of the 10 steps that the World Health Organization advises to expand access to treatment. So the High Cost Medicines Fund for Cancer in Britain is funded by the savings on just 10 patent expired medicines. And British doctors and pharmacists and patients are fantastic at using them. We're amongst the fastest uptake nations in the world for using these drugs. So what can we do next in eye disease? Well, you've got to remember how we get a new medicine. And you've had a hint of it from Prof. Vertruba. She said, well, we have to make sure that the medicine's of suitable quality, that its safety and its effectiveness is known. And then, of course, she said it's got to be reimbursed. So those first three steps are organized through our National Medicines Regulator, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. And that's the responsibility of the All Wales uh, Trials Group, the Genetics Group at Cardiff and so on. That last bit, the so-called fourth hurdle, is NICE, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. We need to understand a little bit about how that works. I'm going to teach you economics in the simplest of ways. Diamonds cost around $7,500 for a carat, and I promise you the adverts are wrong. No one lives longer by owning diamonds. So there's the cost, and there's the effect. $7,500 to live no longer. Now let's contrast that with a glass of water. It's about half a dollar to buy a cubic meter, and you will die within three days without it. Which is the more valuable treatment? It's easy, it's the water. Now we know the value of not treating eye disease. In the US, it's estimated to be $51 billion a year. In Britain, we estimate it's uh, worth 28 billion pounds a year. There's a lot of money that we lose as a consequence of not better managing eye disease. Now, it's very easy to discover the value of a cancer drug because it can take you from near death to living a long and happy life. Who's read the news this week of giving two immune checkpoint inhibitors to people dying of head and neck throat cancers, whose tumours disappeared in eight weeks, and who four years later are off for a holiday? Now, value in most eye diseases is about seeing better. It's a quality of life issue, and that's much harder to measure. So we don't measure the value of a treatment in terms of money, because after all, Bill Gates will value something differently to how I will. NICE values it by something called a utility score. And let's be really clear, they're asking you the value of a treatment in the days of life you would be prepared to give up to get that treatment. It's called a time trade-off. And I've built models and run studies through our cancer trials unit to discover how patients in the United Kingdom value treatments so that NICE can work out what it's worth. And there's two questions we would need to ask everyone with a potential eye disease that we could treat in the future. Number one, would you be willing to take a risk of death or a shorter life by being cured by treatment. So when Prof Marcella says, would you do a trial? Oh, but by the way, there, there are downsides to these. It might not work, it might cause infections. Who knows what happens if we tamper with your genes? And if you're prepared then to say, yes, I'd still join a trial, then we'd say, well, how much of a risk would you take? Would you risk living a day shorter, a week shorter, a month shorter, a year shorter? What risk would you have of, of treatment now? And of course, in cancer medicine, that's a real risk. So the question of why do the cancer medicine and the COVID medicines get approved so quickly? Because there's a clear and demonstrable risk to life 
to balance against the risks of a novel treatment. So now you understand that NICE might reject a 14,000 pound treatment with uh, synthetic uh, nerve growth factor because they didn't understand the value that the drug delivered. And yet we'll approve a 613,000 pound drug because we're clear that we understand what value we're gaining for people who at the moment would live most of a lifetime with severe visual impairment and blindness. So, as you heard from uh, Dr. Nicola and Prof. Marcella, there's a big appeal that for patients with rare or even common uh, eye diseases for which there may be a familial component to get diagnosed, to go along to the clinic every year, because it's clear that we don't yet understand the natural history of many of these diseases. And with an accurate precision diagnosis, we can then discover what happens next and therefore the value of treatment and the priorities for trials. Now, take it from me, there are more than 200 different cancers in the world, and we track the natural history of every single case in Britain through a series of UK cancer registries and databases. If you're sadly unlucky enough to be diagnosed with cancer this year in Swansea, you will be tracked all the way through to see what happens next. What we need to do, knowing that there's more than 300 different retinal diseases, is that we need to register them and track their natural history through a series of UK registries and databases. And with that, we then have the tools to step forward to NICE and say, we want a retinal disease drugs fund, if not just for my brother, but for other people too. So in 2018, the world spent more than $10 billion on targeted biologic therapies for retinal disease, principally uh, age-related macular degeneration and diabetic macular degeneration. Now, the patents on these drugs are beginning to expire in 2022, and the first biosimilar follow-on version was approved a couple of months ago. And so we not only now have the 100,000 Genome Project to help you get diagnosed by talking to Dr. Kate, and the ability to put you into trials by talking to Prof. Marcella, but we now need to generate the funds to go with it and discover the value that those treatments would deliver. So I'm optimistic that eye disease, following on from cancer medicine with a lag of several decades, can learn the lessons that we made wrong and right with cancer disease treatment, and hopefully follow us in eliminating a miserable problem for the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Paul, very much um, for that. I think that was a, a really good explanation, I think, of the challenges that day to day, I think many of us forget about, we're very focused on the research and we're very focused about uh, on the laboratory development and the clinical trials. And we forget how many hurdles there are before a treatment can actually be given to a patient um, within the NHS. Um, have we got anybody who's got any questions at all, uh, particularly for Paul about that? Um, I, I was just going to say, Paul, um, nice, um, you mentioned during your talk the cost of visual impairment, the cost of blindness. Yes. Nice. Does Nice consider that when weighing up, um, not the, you know, the cost of a new treatment and whether it's it's worth paying for the NHS? What costs to society do Nice actually take into consideration? So, look, that's a very good question. And if you had five pounds for every time Sir Mike Rawlins and I 
clashed at a nice meeting. I, I wouldn't drive a Toyota, I promise you. <laughs> so look, um, it, it goes like this, that NICE is very much focused on the costs to the health system. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't take societal costs into account, except through this idea of the utility score for patients. And so when you have a problem with keratitic eye disease, for example, uh, and no one's done the valuation, can't tell you what it's worth, NICE struggles to say whether you can have a £14,000 drug, and then a week or two later says you can have a £600,000 drug. So uh, these are things that we need to lay out. Now, until recently, high-cost drugs meant cancer medicine. Uh, pretty much if I said, oh, there's a, a million-dollar drug out there, you'd go, that sounds like a cancer medicine. And what we're seeing, of course, is that the cost of eye disease drugs is suddenly becoming a major issue. If the world is spending more than $10 billion a year on, on eye drugs just for macular degeneration, then it's an idea of this growing scale of the problem. And as we expect visual impairment to double in the next 30 or 40 years, this isn't going to go away. So that's why we're looking for a, a whole raft of ideas to, in a way, collide at the same time. Better diagnosis, better trials, better treatment, learning to prioritize the most valuable, the treatments for the most important diseases that would deliver the most value and generating the value already ahead of time in, in a drugs fund. And, and so if it means challenging nice methodology, it means challenging my methodology. I, I was faced with a problem that um, when patients have cancer treatment, they often get low on red blood cells. They get anemic and that makes them feel tired and slow and they can't enjoy life. It's a quality of life issue. And um, a drug came along that enabled us to change that, but it was expensive. And the trouble nice was that they said, we simply don't understand the value that feeling better would give to a patient having cancer treatment. Mm. And uh, of course, the trial had not been done with that in mind. Mm. So what I did was to ask um, citizens of Bath to volunteer through the local libraries. And we constructed a utility um, study to find out what that value was. And the result was, of course, that we could go to NICE and then with the right data, get the, get the drug reimbursed. Uh, and that was done not just by me, but I, I went in conjunction with the uh, ovarian, the gynecology cancer advocacy groups, a bit like Retina UK, for the, the, the women who'd most benefit from having that treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, and that really came about from one patient that told me how her life was turned around by being in a trial and having access to that drug. And it made me suddenly see value from the patient's perspective. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, the transformation that's going to have to come is going to be uh, very humbling for doctors, but useful. It's going to be great for patients because we're going to give you a tool to say, I told you so, this was important for me. Mm -hmm. So when you want to know why, as Prof Marcella said, why are people having strange untested therapies? The answer is because studies show that 75% of patients in the Netherlands with a retinal disease would take a treatment that might make them live shorter and might kill them in an effort to be cured. And that tells me that there is a lot of value to be had in better treatment of eye disease. But we need a partnership between the researchers and the patients and the advocates, and then of course, the drug developers, and finally, you the taxpayers who fund it, uh, to make it work. As I say, being tested is, is no treatment, to be in a trial is to develop a treatment, but we want it for everyone, as that questioner said, and that means solving the value issue as early as we can. And it's clear from that, obviously, that the experiences of people living with these conditions are so important. It's so important that their voice is heard and that, and that we somehow, between us all, get through to NICE. 
So what they're going to need to be doing, as I say, is that, you know, we've funded cancer registries, so we understand the natural history of cancer. We now need to work with the the advocacy groups for vision for vision uh, disease and build the same databases and get them funded in the same way and say look this is coming along there's no point developing the drugs and then at the last minute as we discovered in the all wales group with idebanone going and what's its value and the answer is well you want to know how would a patient value it in terms of their life and the answer is we simply didn't know and why because we hadn't got those patients and sat them down and ask them. So next time you come to Dr. Kate's clinic or Professor Vitruva's clinic, if a researcher comes and says, can I just ask you just for a few minutes to tell me what it's like to have your disease, that could be valuable. Now, some of you will say, I've done that. And I'll tell you why. We ran a pilot study in the clinic, the genetic eye disease clinic in Cardiff, where I added the NICE questionnaire, which you may not have realized, to all the patients coming and we timed it. And we showed that we could do the nice patient reported outcome quality of life study, the one that will tell us the value, with no additional time at a routine in every clinic. And I did that because we had some research staff who would do it. What we now need to do is to build that into all the eye disease clinics so that in time we can build up the database to tell us more accurately what's it like, what would patients risk to be better, and take that to NICE and say, here's our priorities for funding, and take it to the researchers and go, well, Prof. Vitruba, Paul has 17,300 and whatever trials in cancer, you've got 50. What is the next one we're going to open in Wales? And it should match the priorities of patients. Thank you very much. It's a really interesting area. Um, I think we're going to have to, to move things on because I think we're already running a little bit behind. But thank you so much, Paul. It's a pleasure. Yeah. I'm sure we'll talk uh, a bit more about this sometime. Yeah. And we've got time at the end as well, I think, for some uh, additional questions to everybody who's spoken. So uh, I will let Matt. Thanks, Kate. And uh, thanks, Paul. That was uh, really, really interesting. Um, so our, our final speaker of the evening is um, Glenn Tukey from Sight and Sound. I'm here to talk about uh, technology for people with, uh, with sight loss. Um, after Glenn's done his um, presentation, um, we have a general uh, Q&A for, uh, for everybody on, as Kate just said. So um, I will hand over to Glenn. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Matthew, and uh, graveyard shift for me tonight. So uh, quick 15 minutes, they said, romp through assistive technology and where it's going next. I think it's more like 15 years. Uh, certainly the next 15 years is what I'm going to try and cover here quickly for you tonight. So I'm Glenn Tukey from Sight and Sound Technology. Uh, just a bit of background. We've been around for 43 years now, uh, leading UK and Irish uh, company looking at low vision blindness. We're also into literacy and behavioural and other uh, conditions as well that require technology to support them. Uh, hopefully, uh, allow people to get on better in their life with the help of technological support. We audit, we assess, uh, we make sure the technology all comes together. And the most important part of any of the things I'm going to talk about is training and supporting it because so many people um, particularly elderly people, struggle to get to understand and use the technology. If you don't get the best out of it, it's of no value to you. And I think that's a crying shame when that happens. Too many people are using tech or try to use tech and they don't know how to get the best out of. Um, why am I here tonight? Well, 
I wanted to talk to you about a couple of things which I've been seeing as I search the world for the best new technology to bring in to sight and sound technology and to bring in to the, the UK markets, including Wales, of course. Um, and the three areas that I see are moving really fast, really quick in a market where uh, for low vision technology, it hasn't moved very fast in the last 20 years or so, but it's starting to accelerate now. And why is that? Amazingly, it's the driverless car technology that's really driving technology into the low vision area. And whilst the speakers here tonight have talked to you about, hopefully, uh, and we all hope that we can get to a point where we can cure and certainly stop some of these eye conditions causing the uh, challenges that they do. Uh, but sadly, some people will not, certainly in the next 20 to 30 years, be able to get to that position with uh, medicine. So it's this type of technology and how well, how, how easy it is to use and how good it is at supporting the conditions that's going to be important. So there are three areas that I'm going to talk to you quickly about. Wearables, navigation solutions, getting from A to B, and smartphones and what's going on there. So first, quickly, I wanted to talk to you about wearables. What's a wearable? Well, for those of you who can see, uh, the screen I'm showing, the uh, Envision glasses, brand new, first of perhaps the latest um, uh, automated intelligence, uh, um, artificial intelligence driven uh, technologies in low vision. This is based on the Google glasses, the Envision glasses. And that little frame there has a camera. And it's very sim simple in the way in which it can then uh, see text and speak it back to you. Uh, see faces and recognize them, recognize uh, objects and even describe scenes to you. And this is typical of what's going on now in the industry from big, lumpy, heavy, slow cameras. We're now down to very light titanium frames with a camera on them. There's two main types I'm seeing in the market, and they're all based uh, actually on gaming technology, would you believe, uh, virtual reality and augmented reality. What does that mean? Well, virtual reality is a headset that you put on and you can immerse yourself in it. Well, uh, those type of products are looking very much at uh, using camera technology uh, presented onto a screen in front of your eyes to enhance your vision, either augment it, perhaps bring the light up, make it crisper, make it easier to see in some of my condition, or maybe virtual reality where actually it's uh, using the technology to actually present the image that it sees to a different part of your eye so that your brain can uh, understand it and you effectively see it. So very clever technology coming along, very light. Yes, unfortunately, quite expensive as well, generally three to five thousand pounds. But it's fast, it's quick and it works. Some of it is standalone. Some of it you may have heard of the Orcam, which is a little camera that connects to your glasses and does facial recognition, will scan and read text for you. Others like the Google Glasses here connect to a smartphone and use the internet to do that conversion of text or description of a scene, sending the image back to a central database and, uh, and, and use the app uh, to do that. Of course, 
as we know, there are many people who struggle to use smartphones and uh, therefore that technology still is very much the uh, province of those who are dexterous uh, and perhaps capable. But uh, the standalone apps are still very powerful and could be used by people who don't have that type of uh, skill base. So uh, those are moving along and it's very accurate now with uh, scene description, face recognition, object recognition, and very fast and very quick as well. But you may have seen, uh, or you may see, if you now go off after this and start looking, that many of the um, devices appear to cover your face uh, like a ski mask and perhaps aren't aesthetically uh, pleasing. But uh, if you're sitting still and trying to uh, read something, uh, then maybe it's uh, not so bad not to look as smart as you wish, but certainly to be able to see uh, that text, read that letter on your own. The Envision glasses are pretty unique, and this is where technology is moving now. It will actually read handwriting. It might not read my doctor's handwriting, mind you, but it can certainly read uh, generally well-written uh, hand text. And that is yet again another acceleration and change in the way technology is going. Um, uh, so you can now hold a greetings card in front of your face and those Envision glasses that I'm showing here will be able to read them. Now, also we're seeing with some of the technology that they're starting to um, differentiate between the different types of uh, sight loss. Uh, many of the ones that were coming to the market in the last two to three years were trying to be all things to all people. So uh, if you have peripheral sight loss or central vision loss, then it was trying to correct them all, which isn't uh, possible with technology and camera technology very easily. So now we're seeing those technologies split out and uh, some which are really there for people with central vision loss and some which are there for people with peripheral vision loss. Um, and they improve the field of vision. And actually some of them are very clever and have anti-tremor uh, software in them. So if you're shaky or not steady on your feet, then the camera technology can even correct the images and present them to you there. So look out for wearables um, because uh, that is the way in which the market for scan and read and magnification uh, is going now. So gone perhaps is that desktop machine that took up half of your dining table five years ago. So uh, that's one class of technology that I wanted to briefly tell you about. The second is navigation um, and getting people from A to B uh, outside is very difficult, particularly as the sight loss becomes more severe uh, and down to the level, obviously, uh, blindness and moving from A to B is very, very, very difficult. So getting navigation to actually navigate from A to B outside is hard. Uh, you, your car can do it. Your mobile phone can do it. But will your mobile phone tell you if you're on the pavement or whether you're in the middle of the road? I suspect it might not. So if you have no sight, then you could be at personal risk uh, until we get these uh, technologies to be um, that sensitive. Well, it's coming along. Some of the technologies will be that sensitive. Uh, and I am trialing already um, some uh, one called Wayband and one called Waymap, which uh, purports to be able to keep you on the pavement rather than down the middle of the road and get you from A to B. But the very simple level, um, 
there's technology which is strap or band related. Uh, I'm showing an image on the screen here of a Sunu band. It's a little uh, radar detector that clips to your wrist and sends out a radar uh, image. And that uh, sends a vibration back to tell you if you're within one, two or three meters, you set it from an obstacle. And you can obviously move your wrist round to scan the route in front of you. And that will tell you if you're reaching an obstacle. Would it substitute a cane? Probably not. Although some like the strap technology, which is going to come out of Mexico in the next uh, six to nine months, does purport to make the cane redundant. Um, as a long time uh, operator in the market of low vision, I'm not quite sure we will get there. But the strap technology actually is like a harness that fits to your chest and it sends out a radar uh, um, uh, image or signal uh, that is clever enough to actually see uh, stairs going down or stairs going up and undulations in the ground, which something simple like the Sunu band perhaps wouldn't see. And this strap technology will vibrate more quickly if the steps are low and slow and long if the steps and drops are high. Um, in the development phase, not here yet, um, but that are the claims they're making. So you're starting to see some very clever technologies now come in to the low vision markets. Um, the other area that I'm seeing a lot of technology development under being undertaken is for navigation inside. Um, we've long had beacons and images uh, that can be scanned by a camera that will perhaps recognize where you are from the uh, label in the image and uh, route you perhaps a bit like Google Maps in the right direction. But the very newest technology, uh, one called Clue technology, for example, actually learns the path you're taking. So it maps where you're going. It'll map a chair or a desk or a turn in a corridor or a light or a door, and it will... Uh, help you get back to the point at which you started. So it maps it on the way out and it navigates you on the way back. And uh, that is a very clever uh, technology driven, obviously, by the very latest uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, and that starts to drive um, mapping uh, to, the, to the level where you don't need to start to spend many thousands of pounds equipping the inside of a building because actually your uh, clue device uh, will do that for you. Now imagine that people who have mapped various routes start to share that um, uh, on the internet and in the cloud, and suddenly you get to a space where uh, people can actually download the clue map when they arrive um, uh, at the door of a building and take the experience that somebody else has had of going from A to B and take it for themselves and map themselves out and map themselves back. And uh, those are the type of uh, brand new technologies I'm seeing and I'm playing and working with now in the navigation space. So I think this is Google Maps Plus for low vision uh, using a mixture of haptic and, uh, and, and wearable technologies. And then what you're starting to see is the wearables that I've just shown you and the navigation that I've just spoken about will start to come together. And the device that you're wearing uh, as a magnification, text-to-speech reading tool, or scene describer, may also well be able to send you 
from A to B. Lastly, in my 15 minute romp around technology, I wanted to talk to you about apps because uh, apps on smartphones, um, and you do need to be a um, smartphone user to, to use an app. Uh, um, they are also starting to now support some very clever uh, and accessible uh, technologies. Inventors are starting with the Android suite. So if you're an Apple iPhone user, yes, I know you spent quite a lot of money on it, but it also costs quite a lot of money to develop on those platforms. So inventors tend to go through Android first before they get to Apple. But the key here is not so much that the smartphone app might do, uh, um, do the type of things that a smartphone will do, but perhaps better for low vision. The key here for people with low vision, and specifically blindness, uh, but low vision in general, is to make them accessible. And one that I've been looking at, which is coming to market very, very soon, uh, called Voxmate, which will uh, uh, be very low cost. It's only a few euros a month to support it, but it makes your phone uh, a highly accessible platform, just using four swipe gestures to actually move around the phone through menus uh, and into the different places that you want to go. And I think Voxmate is going to be a very interesting uh, platform on which many more apps uh, arrive for people with low vision. Why? Because actually it makes them easily accessible. You only have to learn four different gestures and allow yourself to move through the different uh, levels of whatever it is that app is doing for you. And that's the key here. Um, people still struggle even with uh, smartphone tapping, double tapping. And with Voxmate, you learn swipe up, swipe down, swipe left, swipe right. So we're starting to see that type of technology come in. And then the last piece uh, in uh, apps is where the LiDAR, uh, LiDAR and Super LiDAR uh, apps are coming in. And they are clever. They are smart, accessible apps that go one step further. They use a camera part of your camera phone. And if you look at your camera phone and see it's got a little round dot next to the three cameras, that's LiDAR. Now, Super LiDAR uses that camera not only to look at the distance, sorry, what is around you, but it looks at the distance uh, of things in your surroundings and it's able to map and describe the surroundings back to you. So now with an app which has got Super LiDAR uh, in it, it will not only just tell you to go um, in this direction, but it will tell you the stairs are five meters away. It will tell you um, when you've got to turn. It will tell you if the lighting's poor. Uh, it will uh, also give you haptic uh, vibration type feedback as well, left and right, up and down, depending on uh, how the app itself presents this. So uh, smartphones are smart. But for people with uh, uh, low vision conditions, they're about to get very, very much smarter with Super LiDAR because you can actually describe the surroundings, map it, paint the picture for you and feed that back to you. And in conjunction with something like Voxmate, making it easy to get to that information, then suddenly your smartphone uh, becomes uh, probably 100 times more accessible than, than it is now with voiceover or um, or feedback. And we're actually even seeing um, diagnostic apps emerging as well now, which are starting to bring 
uh, monitoring and measuring of eye conditions down to an affordable level such that um, general uh, opticians and certainly even um, uh, individuals at some point should be able to measure and have interpreted some of the conditions of their eye. I don't think you'll ever take away the need for the expert to, uh, to, to interpret it, but certainly some of the measurement and tracking of eye conditions is coming out of some of this app development technology. So uh, that's a quick run through of the way in which uh, perhaps started with driverless cars, this type of technology is driving through wearables, making them smaller, lighter, more powerful, and even reading hammering text through to navigation devices, um, remembering where you've been and getting you back to where you started. And of course, apps on your phone that truly are accessible. Uh, but even longer term, I've been playing uh, with uh, some devices that bring all of those things together. But I've also been playing with robotic guide dogs. And um, amazingly, uh, uh, I have been watching in Japan uh, robotic guide dogs uh, maneuvering their way and taking their owners uh, not just around uh, courses, but up and down stairs as well. So the, the day is coming uh, when I think uh, we will start to see really everything uh, driven by some form of AI. And I think this is going to have enormous uh, benefits uh, in the world of low vision. So um, stick with me <laughs> and science and technology, because this is what I spend a lot of my time doing is finding these technologies to bring them uh, here into the UK um, for people to work with and try. So um, I think I'm just about on my 15 minutes. Here are places you can go to get a little bit more information about what I'm doing, what we're doing at Sight and Sound Technology. We have a smartphone app that you can download, which talks about technology to support specific eye conditions. It's called WHATAT, W-H-A-T-A-T. -A -T. Another good place to go is our YouTube channel, the Sight and Sound Technology YouTube channel, where you'll see a wide range of different podcasts and videos, some of them five minute coffee cup type videos, some of them longer, covering off some of these type of technologies uh, in more depth with some of the inventors and people uh, that we've been talking to and that I've summarized here tonight. You can always talk to um, us and our uh, technical support teams at uh, Sight and Sound as well. And um, you can find us on the website and sounds um, or give us a call and we'll go into some of these in more detail for you. But um, thank you very much. That's my 15 minute romp through the world of future tech. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Glenn. Um, if anybody's got any questions, particularly for Glenn, do feel free to stick your hand up uh, virtually or uh, type them in the question box. Glenn, click, oh, we have got somebody's hand up. Oh no, I've gone away again. <laughs> Is it Ruhi, Ru Ru Sorry if I'm not pronouncing your name correctly. Um, that may just have been a hand up by mistake, but do put it up again if it wasn't. I, I was just gonna say, Glenn, um, Clearly, there must be quite a variation in cost between some of these technologies. Um, the apps, I think you mentioned, 
a few pounds a month for one of the apps but I, I know that some of those those wearables are you know in the thousands of pounds is there any kind of funding available from anywhere to make some of those things a bit more accessible for people who might not perhaps be able to afford that uh, well yes there is and um well firstly they do vary quite considerably and some of the smartphone apps are going to be very affordable um you know in a few euros a few pounds a month and you're absolutely right if you get to the, the top end of the industry at the moment and the orcam uh, my eye uh, and even the envision glasses three to three and a half thousand pounds that's not cheap um uh, but there's quite a lot in between uh, in but there are still hundreds of pounds funding so where do you get funding for from them well uh, if you're in employment, the access to work scheme run by DWP will, of course, uh, help you out. Your employer should always make reasonable adjustments uh, by law. Uh, if you're in higher education, uh, you can uh, uh, lean on the Disabled Students Allowance funding, which will fund all of the technology that I've shown you here, plus your training, plus your support for the, for the length of your course. Um, you can. Uh, through many of the charities, get some form of charitable support. And uh, certainly with us, you can extend uh, the cost uh, of the technology through an interest-free scheme over uh, one, two, and three years. So there are ways of making it more affordable. Um, but uh, yes, you're right. There are, there are not many places you can go. And of course, if you go to Europe, where so much of this technology is funded by insurances, uh, Germany, uh, Belgium, Holland example, um, then uh, it's very sad that we have to battle hard and uh, I have to take hard-earned money from people to you know, provide and support them with this technology. Um, but it is coming down in price and I do hold out a lot of hope for smartphone apps. As I've just described, some of them will, I think, um, be accessible enough and cheap enough to become mass market. And that's what we would all like to say, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, OK, I think we're about at the right time to to uh, open open the floor to the whole speaker panel. If anybody has got any questions for any of our speakers tonight that they've thought of as the evening's gone on, um, do feel free to pop up now and uh, put your hand up. Matt, do you just want to remind people how to raise their hand? I can't. Absolutely. So yeah, there are a couple of ways that you can do this. Um, so if you're using a tablet and um, there'll be the reactions button, which will allow you to raise your hand. If you're on a computer, so a Windows computer, you can press the Alt and Y key. And if you're on a Mac, you can press the Option and Y. Uh, and that will uh, raise your hand so we can then ask you to unmute your microphone and ask the question yourselves. Have a look, we're not, we're not seeing anybody at the moment, which must be a good sign because you must have answered all of their questions for them and covered everything possible. So um, I feel like it'd be quite nice just to, to run around some sort of take home messages maybe. Um, Nicola, do you just perhaps want to remind people if they're interested in, would like to consider some genetic testing or counselling, um, their best way forward to do that? Absolutely. Um, so your ophthalmologist will be an expert in some areas of this as well, particularly around the diagnostic genetic testing. 
But if you're interested in testing, um, perhaps for something in your family, or if you'd like some genetic counselling, whether you have a diagnosis already or you're looking to get one, um, you can ask a referral to your local genetic service, either from your GP or from your ophthalmologist. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, Marcella, clearly quite a lot of hope, I think, going forward. Um, lots going on. How would you yes. sum that up? <laughs> I think the important thing is that it does all begin with an accurate genetic diagnosis. And then um, I think it also depends upon the ability to understand where you are in your disease and that treatments will be developed that will um, target individual diseases eventually, but that will take time. I think it's important for patients to realise that some patients will be um, beyond the therapies that might restore sight by gene therapy if there's already lots of lots of nerve cells in the retina yeah. but obviously there may be a second wave of therapies that might address that sort of thing such as the transplant type therapies so it's a very complex area and at the present time I hate to use this word but I suppose you can only really be relatively patient and think through what might happen in the next few years because sadly Although it's around the corner, it's always seemingly around the corner. I know. But I do think it is. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It, it's difficult. Our community, I think, have heard for such a long time that something's around the corner. But but I, I do think now there's an there's a genuine acceleration, isn't there? And 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 things are are starting to happen. Um, Paul, thank you so much for your insights into into what has to happen to get treatments. To, to our community and, 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 and that. But it, it does sound like things might change along the way that they did for cancer. I think so. I don't see any reason why not, because the building blocks are there. And in a way, uh, you know, the reason to, to read history and biography is to learn from other people's mistakes. And in oncology, of course, we've made plenty. Um, so what I'd hope is that, you know, you may be starting the race from behind, but, uh, you know, the hare and the tortoise is a, is a good moral for us all, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Glenn, did you just want to remind people how they can get in touch with you, perhaps? How they can find out a bit more about your technologies? Your yes, <laughs> I'm muted. Uh, yes, yeah, Sight and Sound Technology uh, can be found uh, on the web just by search. Um, info at Sight and Sound Technology, 01604-798-070. You can find us there um, and you can find out more. But the places like the YouTube channel and type in Sight and Sound Technology, you can find a whole load of interesting stuff to uh, while the evening's away. And if these guys around me uh, do their job properly, of course, uh, I'll be redundant and, and, and out of a job. Um, but uh, hope is still there that if they don't quite make it round the corner, um, then the technology that we are working with is uh, is is going to perhaps look after you even better than it has in previous years, in the years to come. Thank you very much. Um, thank you to all our speakers. Matt, do you just want to, to wrap up? Absolutely. Uh, yes, thank you so much to all of our speakers. Uh, Glenn, I'm particularly interested in the robotic guide dog, as I'm sure most of our community will be. Everybody wants the dog. They're not going to have to uh, have to worry about kind of cleaning the fur off their trousers before they go into meetings, which uh, quite often uh, causes some embarrassment. So um, thank you um, to, to everybody. 
Um, so just as by way of summing up, um, thank you um, to everybody who joined us tonight. You know, we, we do this for the benefit of our community. Um, as mentioned at the beginning of the evening, Retina UK will be delivering at least one webinar every month, um, the next of which is on Wednesday, the 27th of October, uh, where we'll be joined by Michael Gilhooley, who will give us a fascinating uh, presentation on uh, optogenetics. Um, so you can register for that on our website. Uh, I know I've seen a few people who have uh, registered on this one, also registered on that one as well. Um, so please do come along for that. Uh, so just uh, after this uh, today, we will be sending out an email over the next couple of days, which have got details uh, where you can re-watch or listen to this evening's presentations and details of how you can book onto, uh, onto Michael's event. Uh, we'll also be seeking your feedback as well. We value all feedback um, and it just helps us to develop our webinars um, and all of our other services as well. So um, please do share your feedback with us. So once again, thank you ever so much for everybody who's joined us this evening uh, and a special thanks to all of our presenters um, who've given such fantastic presentations tonight. So with that, I wish you all a good evening and thank you very much for joining us. Good night.